Welcome, everyone. Throughout his 30-year career, J.C. McKenzie has appeared in over 150 movies and TV shows, including Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game and TV shows Dark Angel, Dexter, and The Shield. He's also a favorite of director Martin Scorsese, appearing in The Aviator, The Departed, The Wolf of Wall Street, and HBO's Vinyl. He's currently starring in HBO's Share, which can be seen on Crave, and the upcoming series October Fraction for Netflix, along with the films The Hunt and Scorsese's latest The Irishman, opposite Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. I guess The Hunt is just sitting in limbo somewhere. Very interesting. It Mm -hmm. was to be released September 27th. We got word three days before the release that uh, the director actually texted me saying we got some problems with the... uh, you know, the studio, and I was like, what problems? And he said, eh, it has to do with Trump. I went, Trump? Why does Trump have anything to do with a movie release? Well, apparently it has to do with the deplorables mentioned in the film and a suggestion that it's too political, it's going to be too divisive mm-hmm. and incendiary. So uh, as a result, it was shelved, weirdly shelved. And, and the next just days before the release. I mean, this doesn't happen. No, it yeah. was nuts. I mean, I was on CNN. There was like a buddy, buddy called, texted me. He goes, dude, you're on CNN right now. A picture of you. <laughs> it's because I, I say the word deplorables. I'm, you know, I'm always playing rich billionaires, uh, rich, smart billionaires. <laughs> My wife uh, says it's ironic because, you know, you're a cheap idiot. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I ran into an actor who was uh, doing uh, Sorkin's uh, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, which I just finished about a month ago in Jersey. And he's friends with um, with the director, Craig Zobel, and he, apparently it's coming out in the new year. I just don't know when. But it, I, I've, seen, I've seen footage of it, and it's really good. It's a satire, for God's yeah. sake. So, But whatever, you know, we're in dicey political Times. We are in dicey political times. Do you think that the it's just the the that opinions have shifted a little bit since September of last year? A lot's happened. The impeachment, uh, the the, I the think, Iran situation. I think I think everything has shifted since uh, Trump's arrival. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing this show right now, and uh, you know, <laughs> they they're using my you know I'm a monster hunter and the monster mm-hmm. hunters are like metaphors for the xenophobic paranoia of the others which you see pronounced so uh, pointedly in uh, you know in the Trump administration so there's a lot to draw from uh, in that sense but yeah it's it's all over the culture it's seeped in and I live down the states and mm-hmm. it's horrific I mean you know. It's not so bad in New York because it's pretty liberal. I mean, it's knee-jerk liberal. It's liberal, but uh, yeah, the rest of the country, uh, his political base, uh, which is being fed red meat consistently, is, uh, you know, there is a a divide down there. And everyone's speaking to their own fishbowls with MSNBC or Fox and, you know, whatever your political leanings are. Well, Well, we'll get to October faction and lots of stuff in a second, but I agree with you. And I think... That when the internet happened, I thought, this is amazing at first. We will have the totality of life's knowledge 
at our fingertips, anything that we could ever want to know. We could just type it up and, oh, look, I can read um, uh, Antigone by Sophocles if I want to. I can read Shakespeare. I can read whatever it is that I want to read, except it didn't work that way. I think what's happened is that people have become more and more narrow cast because Definitely. they can find whatever it is that they agree with out right. there, and that's all that they read. And it doesn't matter if it's lies, mm -hmm. you know, especially if it's lies. It's yeah. like they're going to agree with it. I mean... I don't know. He's come up with uh, 18,000 lies, uh, you know, known lies. They've been fact-checked, and people just believe whatever he has to say. So, Well, it, it, it is interesting. You, you mentioned uh, the uh, Aaron Sorkin uh, show that you're doing, the Chicago 7. The yeah, Trial of the Chicago 7. And you play a lawyer uh, in that, a real-life guy. Yeah, I play the real guy. Uh, it's uh, myself and George... George uh, Jordan uh, Joseph Gordon Levin. Mm -hmm. I can never say that word. Uh, who play? We are the prosecuting attorneys that go after the Chicago Seven. So it was interesting. Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman, all those. Yeah, guys, it yeah. was great sitting around a table with uh, Eddie Redman and Mark Rylance and yeah. uh, oh my God, the cast is insane. It was the only time because of the nature of the setup where I was like genuinely really nervous to perform in front of those guys because they're all our great American and international character actors. Uh, so, plus I had 300 extras behind me thinking, oh, Jesus, I can do better than that guy. He can't even come up with the lines. I mean, I was really petrified weirdly in that situation. And it's not because of Aaron. He couldn't be a more yeah. uh, sweet, uh, you know, he's one of the best directors I've ever worked with. He works differently than Scorsese. He, first of all, he wants his dialogue spot on. It's like written, written like a movie score. So uh, you better get your dialogue down. And but it, 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 you know, he's such a brilliant writer. It play if you just play his pauses the way they've been written, it works. I saw it in Molly's Game. It's going to work in this. And uh, so uh, yeah, it was an interesting project. Uh, I, I, I think it'll do well. It'll, it, it's being released uh, October twenty fourth of uh, this year. So. It'll get a wide release, and because of the stars involved, it, it's going to get some eyes on it. Mark Rylance, there's well, a guy who well. is formidable, and most of his work that has made him legendary was done on stage. So yeah. comparatively speaking, a lot of people haven't seen it. Yeah. But man, that guy, that guy's one of the best actors, I agree. Period. I agree, and I watched him up close. First of all, he couldn't be a nicer man. Really? He couldn't be a kinder, sweeter soul. I mean, he's just like a walking open sore. He's just so, <laughs> he's just so available. And um, and I I saw him. I took my son to the open theater in um, in London to see him play Iago. Wow! Uh, and he was yeah, and he was uh, astonishing. You know, and I I I said, you know, what's amazing about you is that no disrespect to the other actors in your company, but. You speak like I'm speaking to you now, but it's Shakespeare. It's an it's an iambic pentameter. It's you know you've got all of you've got all of the rules associated with playing Shakespeare. Yet, first of all, I th obviously you know what you're talking about, and you give it to us in a, a weirdly contemporary fashion, so we understand exactly what you're saying. Because sometimes it's difficult with Shakespeare. Yeah, you know, it's a little flowery and. Uh, Indecipherable. I once, I, I once had I was interviewing Ray Fiennes, and he had just oh. done Coriolanus, uh, oh. and and I said I asked him something about one of the scenes, and he recited it for me. But it was conversational, and that makes all the difference. Especially, I think 
with an eye towards bringing a younger audience in that will want to understand the classics. Uh, if it sounds too airy-fairy, they're not going to listen to it. If it sounds like someone talking to them, they can figure it out. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny you, you say that because I saw him do Hamlet in New York. Wow. And it was unusual staging in that, uh, again, uh, and I think this was strategic, but the director had everyone very, very loud and big and faced to the audience. And then you had this creepy figure come out, backing out from the back, and it was Ray Fiennes with his opening speech very, very quietly. Wow. So it just shushed the audience and focused the piece in a way that I had never seen before. I don't know if it was Fiennes doing that or the director. He was amazing. He's a, he's a great stage uh, actor and, a, and you know, obviously a, a fine uh, film actor as well. And he's Voldemort. He is. He is. He's got a funny face. <laughs> I want to talk about a little bit and go way back. So you were born in Peterborough. You grew up in Ottawa. Your mm. parents were a pharmacist and a nurse. Yeah. Did they have show busy Not aspirations Not at all. They at could all? care less. Really? My brothers like t- constantly take the piss out of me. I got three of them. <laughs> they couldn't. They can't believe I'm an actor. And don't uh, – <laughs> I don't know if they're not proud of me. I, I, I like it because yeah. uh, I don't have an ego because right. they're constantly beating it down. Um, yeah, it's not, we were not raised in a showbiz family. I didn't see a, a play, a professional play until I was well into my, you know, I was nineteen twenty until I saw a play. Wow. I got in, and then I, I took a trip to New York, saw my first play, Bernard Slade's A Tribute, starring Jack Lemmon. Yeah. I thought it was a movie, actually. But, man, that's a way to start, though. It is. <laughs> uh, with Jack Lemmon, who was amazing. Yeah. I couldn't believe the... You know, he was eliciting in, in these older men from the suburbs tears and laughter. And I thought I was literally transformed after that and had this, you know, epiphany that I might want to teach acting as opposed to teach drama through a means of education. And then I got into Concordia University, which is the only university who would take my marks, uh, <laughs> take me given my marks. And then uh, and then I got into Lambda. And that's where in London where I decided, uh, I think I'm going to give it a shot. Let's just see. I received an enormous amount of uh, discouragement from usually actors uh, initially saying, you know, you never work. I wouldn't do it. Uh, don't go to Toronto. But I, I uh, formulated this cross-Canada audition tour, and I auditioned for all of the major theater companies across Canada on my own dime. I got my first job. That Is that job. something that people do? No. I no. I th- I've heard actors do it. I've heard some – some, I, I, if there are young actors out there, uh, I couldn't encourage you more to do something like that. Right. That is going to show your mettle and you get in front of people. And listen, a lot of the times I failed in these rooms, but I auditioned 70 for 75 artistic directors on my own, with my own material that I wrote often. I wouldn't tell them it was my material yeah. in case it failed. But, you know, just to, just to particularly for the contemporary stuff, to draw from myself, I thought it was important. And then I'd pick a classical piece, and I got my first gig, and then I never stopped working. I start, started in, you know, I was at the Shaw Festival, which I didn't like at all. And then I got picked up by, handpicked by Neil Simon to do the national tour of Biloxi Blues, and that, that was it. This is uh, extraordinary. I mean, Neil Simon, yeah. one of the handful in those days of playwrights who people would go see the show just because it was a Neil Simon show. Absolutely. And so this was is a, a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I got flown down to New York to audition. I didn't know he was going to be 
in the theater with Gene Sachs, a director who had just finished directing the Broadway version of Biloxi Blues. But So I didn't think I was going to get it as a result. Wasn't nervous. Uh, did my piece. He said, that was good. Uh, do you want to sing? And I went, no. Uh, I can't sing. And he goes, you have to sing in, the, in this role. I said, okay, I'll sing. So I did some sort of Nazi takeoff on uh, Hitler. He's only got one ball. Rommel's right, yeah, got yeah. two, but they are small, <laughs> tiny. And anyway, he laughed, and I, he said, that's it. And I said, can I touch you? And he said, what? And he said, can I touch you? And I said, why? And I said, because, listen, chances are I'm not going to get the gig, right? You're Neil Simon. I'm not going to get a chance to touch Neil Simon. He goes, touch me. I don't care. Come down and touch me. So I went down, I touched his elbow, and I went, look at that, it's Neil Simon's elbow. There's his hand, touching his hand. And, you know, about a week later, I got the gig. And uh, it was great. I hung out with these unbelievable uh, Ted Levine, who was like the creepy guy in... Uh, Buffalo you know, Bill. Buffalo Bill. Yeah, in Songs of the Lambs. Yeah. Billy Ragsdale played the lead. He was in, you know, he's yeah. done a lot of work. You know, it was just a great group of young, talented actors. And we spent the following year and a half touring all over North America in the Broadway uh, production of, uh, of uh, Biloxi Blues. So when I got back to New York, I was supposed to go back to Canada, and my, um, all my friends were like, you should, you know, you, you, gotta, you got some leverage now. You can yeah. probably get an agent in New York. But I was under this H-1 visa, which at the time was just a working visa, and you had to leave after the gig. And so I got it extended, paid a lawyer, got it extended, and then ended up staying. And I've been down there ever since. I moved to California with my family for uh, a gig. Uh, for, and we were there for about 10 years. And then I moved back to New York five years ago to do vinyl on HBO. And we stayed because we much preferred New York. So I love New York. Yeah, New York's We great. can talk about New York. <laughs> uh, tell, so Biloxi Blues, I want to talk about, I think I jumped around a little bit here. Uh, you were in the Toad of Toad Hall. Yeah, it's one of my first gigs in yeah. Toronto. And there's two different pantomime horses. Uh-huh. And you played the backside of both That's of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the front side. His name is Steven. He's a, he's a singer, great guy. He's got three brothers in the business. I think he's like a... He's like a musician now. Stephen Ambrose? No. Nope. No. God, I can't remember Stephen's name. Yep. Great, great man. He apologized profusely for <laughs> his ass being in my face for like three months. But uh, Eddie Gilbert, I believe, was head of Canadian Stage at that point. And I had just finished a horrific, my f- first gig, which I got with this national tour of Biloxi Blues, or uh, this national tour of of, of these um, theaters across Canada was Marion Andre's The Lady from Maxime's at Theater Plus. It was horrific. It couldn't have been worse. And, and why so? Oh, it was just so over the top and unbelievable. And I thought, this is everything I've been taught not to do in acting. This guy is asking me to do, do a takeout to the audience, make a face, pull a funny voice. Right. I just couldn't stand it. So I thought... I'm not into acting. I don't think this is for me. And then I got I got a, this other gig, Summerfolk, Gorky Summerfolk, a Canadian stage directed by Eddie Gilbert with this great cast. And it was the exact opposite. It was like, you know, comedy coming out of the reality of the situation, people being authentic, talking to one another, listening to one another in this great Russian play. 
And so I went, oh, I see. It's, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. And is there a lesson you learn out of that? Is there a lesson that teaches you, like, they're not all going to, you're not going to hit it out of the park every single time. Is that what that, you take away? Definitely. I mean, that usually you don't hit it out of the park. Yeah. And usually it's, uh, it's very difficult to get people with the same sort of, you know, aesthetic. Uh, they're, they're just, people are just, it's subjective. People mm-hmm. think, for me, people think acting is like uh, I've got a relative, and they're like, "I." I say, "What do you think good acting is?" And they're like, "Somebody who's got a funny voice, who, who, who's, who, you know, who's got a crooked back." And I went, "Really? That's good acting?" Yeah. And then they say, "I don't like these people that are just themselves." Like, and I said, "Like who?" And I, yeah, Robert, Robert Redford, and I'm like. Robert Redford, I think, is a very good actor. He's an underappreciated. He's a very subtle actor. He often plays Robert Redford, but he's a star. That's what they do. Yeah, you know, he's not he's not Meryl Streep, but but you're not a method actor. I was reading an interview with you where you talk about how essentially, and and maybe I'm wrong about this because I've read a lot of stuff about you here, but where you say something like. I'm essentially myself, but just accentuating the parts of me that I need to play this character. Well, what I what I do because I want it to be as authentic as possible. So the first thing I do is look up the director I'm going to be working with to see if he's in the improvisation. Right. If he is, I work with it and I love it. Scorsese's into that. There are many uh, Pippa Bianco. I just finished the HBO Share movie. She's into that. Many uh, many directors aren't, but so you find out quickly how loose or tight, conversely tight, a set is going to be. And then you act accordingly. I'm, uh, just in terms of acting, just to get the most authentic performance, the most important thing for me, and I can't always do it and sometimes I fail, is to listen, is Mm -hmm. to honestly listen to what the other person is saying so I can react accordingly. That was sort of the way I was trained in San, Sandy Meisner down in the United States. And that's, that, that's been enormously helpful because half your work is done if you're just listening and responding as you would in a situation like you and I are talking right now. I think this is good acting, whatever. Um, but um, And then it, it's to shift the focus uh, of your personality. I have many different J.C. McKenzie's, one's serious, one's goofy, one's – uh, sentimental, sophomoric, and, you know, you shift the lens depending on the role you're playing and execute. That's my, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Some people are like, like, I usually get, you're too small, I need it to be bigger. And I'm like, just wait to see in the final performance if you see that in my eyes. Because, uh, you know, it's it's all a learning process. I, you know, I, I'm an old man now and I'm learning uh, different things like, you know, stupidly that all you have to do is think, think a thought and it, it will weirdly translate, you know, if you're doing it correctly and if the director is, is on you and gets that. So, uh, you say that you found that later on in life, did you look for your authentic self and, and did you have to go looking for it or in the beginning, like I'm not an actor, but I am a performer on radio and television. I interview people. I talk to people. I'm a broadcaster. It took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to be as a broadcaster. I thought I had to sound like Lloyd Robertson. I thought I had to be Peter Jennings. I thought I had to be one of those guys. It wasn't until I became myself, my authentic self, that I got successful at this. I think that's the key to everything. I think, you know, I worked with a young actress 
who sat at the table with uh, Gordon Joseph Levitt and myself, and she's like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm beginning to work with this voice coach who wants to change my voice. And I said, hold on, right there. I would advise against that. You have a beautiful, quirky, idiosyncratic voice. You play that voice better than anyone else, so why get rid of it? Use it. Use as much of yourself as possible, whatever that is. And in fact, all the vulnerable that you think is horrible, it's actually, that's what you want to dwell on. I mean, you know, bring that up. Uh, you know, use use these aspects of yourself that 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 you, that other people find uh, horrible or that 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 you find embarrassing that's the key to your success because there's nobody else like you i thought that right from the beginning but i didn't really know who i was so you're you're seeking to find yourself at a very young age in your early 20s and so you often you're gr grasping at straws but once it, you get a sense of yourself man just just do it well, There's it, nobody else like you. It's difficult when you're starting, I would imagine, because you've got directors to tell, telling you to be one way, an agent maybe saying, you know, you could get more roles if you had dark hair oh or you God. didn't wear glasses or whatever it might be. Yeah, the, the ridiculous amount of, uh, <laughs> of advice I'd get from... Oh, agents, you, know, you got to bite your lip more, and like I'm like, what? <laughs> you shake your head more. You're you're the nerdy guy on the side of the handsome guy, and I'm like, you you've got to get a hitch. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking yeah. about, man. Uh, you know, and I tried to follow their advice, but it was so confusing and confounding. Uh, it just didn't work for me. It's really when I started to use, like, just as you said, I started to use myself my authentic self that I started to get work because it was coming from someplace real, mm -hmm. you know, so. Well, you have done so much television. So we talked about Biloxi Blues. You do that, you come back, you think, ah, maybe I can make a go of this. So you end up in California, which is where I imagine that you played Marty on Baywatch. This is around 1990. Yeah. Uh, what do you recall from that shoot? Uh, well, the costume fitting, the costume designer asked me to be in a Speedo. And I said, you don't want to see me in a Speedo. And if you do want to see me in a Speedo, I'm going to wear a very long towel covering my genitals. Uh, so uh, so we, had a, I, we actually had a fight about it on set because the director was like, he, he's got to be in a Speedo. And I'm like, dude, I'm not going to be in a Speedo. It, it just, it's just horrific. You don't want to see me in a Speedo. And then I, I got slow the, motion in a speedo at some point probably <laughs> too, right? I got the I got the crap beat out of me by David Hasselhoff, and you know that was on my reel for all of like three weeks. <laughs> uh, but you know it was a gig like anything else. And you so, make money, right? Yeah, you make top of show for something like that, which is good. You get residuals in in the United States, which is what uh, character actors live off of yep. a fair majority of the time. So. Do you get a check? So if you've been on, say, in 1990, you did five episodic television shows. Mm. Do you get five different checks or is it all lumped together? Because I would love it if you got a check from Baywatch, just from Baywatch alone. Oh, uh, no, no. They're yeah. all separate checks. Are they? Yeah. So I got a Baywatch check somewhere in my, uh, uh, you know, in, in my bag in the, in the, in the garage. Uh, but uh, the payment structure for films for character actors has changed radically, you know, like... All the great character actors in the 70s, 80s, and 90s work, uh, they got a fee, mm -hmm. and they were required to get that fee, and once you got, uh, once you finished that gig, your fee went up. 
And so my first, when I first started, I got $10,000 a week to, to do a movie, which is great. So yeah. two weeks is 20,000 bucks. There was a strike in 1993, and the payment structure from that strike changed radically. So actors were given uh, scale 10, take it or leave it, and there are 10 guys behind you that'll take it if you don't. And scale 10 means? Means 700 bucks a day. Right. So everything was cut out from underneath us. Guys used to make $300,000, $400,000, $500,000 a year as character actors, as working character actors. And that just shifted. Now, television is different. You still have a quote. They meet your quote. Your quote goes up. And getting a TV show, uh, those of you that don't know that are listening, is almost like winning the lottery. Yep. It just doesn't happen. It, it doesn't happen. And uh, it, it, you don't understand. I don't think unless you've been around and you've, you've – and we'll talk about Murder One, which seemed to really change things for you. First of all, we've got to talk about Law & Order because you've been on all iterations of Law yeah, & Order, I, I think. Uh, but um, it is. It's, it's a once in a, in a, 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 a million chance of, of getting a television show that lasts. That lasts. It's yeah. impossible. To getting a pilot is difficult, let, let it, letting alone getting cast on a show that goes where you're not fired. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I've been on my first sitcom. I did a sitcom back, uh, you know, my first gig, which is, I can't even remember the name. It was about six priests in a seminary, six wacky priests in a seminary. And, uh, and I was the only person replaced after the pilot. Thank God it didn't go past six six months. I would have yeah, been hor. It was Can you just, imagine if it was still on thirty years uh, later? You'd be like, come like on, like some now. Cheers thing. <laughs> uh, I was replaced by a large African American woman, so it wasn't wasn't that bad. It wasn't somebody that looked like me, right. uh, but uh, yeah, it's very very difficult. And usually, you know, I think it's changing a bit. I mean, I'm an old ugly character actor, so for me to get a lead in a TV series at this age, it's usually they're usually guys that are 35 and mm-hmm. speaking a sotto voce voice and hey, yeah, how you doing? <laughs> With uh, limited range, I have limited range, believe me. But uh, but uh, but they they have a jawline. I don't. Got to talk about Law and Order. Law and Order. Uh, is the way I think New York actors pay their rent. I I love going to the theater. I love going to Broadway. And I always look, and it's, uh, pardon me, uh, credit after credit after credit in the theater, and then a bunch of Law & Orders. Every single actor in New York has done it. Oh, my God, yeah. If you haven't done a Law & Order, there's something off off with you. I've done, I think, four or five. Played a neo-Nazi in one. That that lasted for three or four episodes. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, 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 lawyer in a couple, uh, sociopath in another. Um, uh, I'm always, uh, I'm generally at this point in my career killing people or getting killed. Um, so, uh, and there's a lot of that in Law & Order. Law & Orders are odd. <laughs> I think they're odd because, you know, the detectives always come to the door and people are always doing things. Yeah. They're taking out the garbage. <laughs> they can't stop. For somebody who's a policeman, who's looking, who's wanting to ask them, I'd be petrified. I'd put down the garbage it's and talk to them. The bartenders that blow my mind. The bartenders that there's nobody at the bar, but they're too busy to talk to the Oh, guy. yeah. They're wiping glasses. Yep. They're not dealing with the detectives. <laughs> I mean, I've been on all of them. I love the uh, the, the, the latest iteration. SVU? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I, 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 I think she's a... She, 
for those of you that don't know her, she's an astonishingly gifted leader. Not only an actress, but a leader. And I've never seen somebody... That's Mariska Hargitay we're yeah, talking about. Yeah. yeah, she's done 18 years of this. I know. And she is as into it and as enthusiastic and as complimentary as, uh, you know, as somebody who's on the first week of a show. She's astonishing. Director Martin Scorsese, we have to talk about that. You're his go-to guy. Do you hang out with Marty? Oh, go to his house? Oh, we're like this. <laughs> you can't see this. My fingers are way apart. No, he's not. You know, Marty and I don't hang out. But no. every time I get together on set with him, it's like... Uh, it's cool. He's different in terms of temperament. Every film he does, uh, based on the subject matter. So for the Aviator, he was light and airy and fluffy and funny. And for the Departed, he wasn't. You know, yeah. and you don't take it personally. It's just the way he is, and he's he's after a certain uh, flavor for the film, depending on what the subject matter is. So for me, he's always been uh, like I again. I looked him up and found out the way he works and. I love improvisation. I love a loose set. Uh, as long it has to has to work within the context of the scene. You can't go in there with your pants down. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense. You have to. I mean, it has to be real. But as long as it is, I've seen. Excuse me if I'm repeating myself, but I've seen scenes that start off with an eighth of a page balloon into three, four pages right. of, of wonderful stuff. Maybe that's why his films are so long. But he is looking for something different, something to surprise him. But it's always based in reality. And as long as you're real, he is into it. And it doesn't have to you, – you can be come from various different places. But so for me, it's just oh, it's just a gem, man. I just – I relax. I'm you, You're working with these big stars. I don't even think about it. You're on the same page. He, he pays as much attention to you as he does the big star. I've never had that before. I mean, he's just a great, great actor's director. He knows what he's doing in terms of acting, and he can supplement all his his work with actors with the psychological take, the way he positions his camera. Mm. So he sees what the actor is doing in the rehearsal, and then on his feet positions a camera psychologically so it makes sense within the context of those emotions. I mean, it's kind of wild to watch him work. Well, this is why Sam Mendes, when he accepted his Golden Globe the other night, said, make no mistake, every director currently working is working in the shadow of Martin Scorsese. Oh, man. And for him to be like, uh, you know, I was in drama school and for for me to be in five of his projects and just continually cast, I mean... For, that's that's exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do small parts in large films with A-list directors who continued to hire me, and then parlay that into, you know, into uh, you know, lead leading roles in television where I can, you know, make money and yeah. and you know, do do other things. You know, so so it's been a. It took a little longer maybe than I thought, you know, and my mother was like, no uh, tick tock, baby, when's it going to happen? You're an old man. Uh, but he's, uh, oh man, I just, I can't, uh, I, I think he's fantastic. I really do. Well, I loved vinyl and I know that people said, yeah, oh, it's it, it, Mercer Street 
the club on Mercer Street didn't really fall down around people while the bands were playing there. I didn't care whether it was historically accurate or not in terms of that sort of thing because it captured the moment. It captured the feel of what I imagine it was like there. You were in that. Mick Jagger was one of the producers on that. Was he on set? Did you meet Mick Jagger? Certainly did. And I what was, was that like? I, I hung out with Ray because we were partners in, in the show. So, you know, he was a little more friendly with Mick because he's famous. I'm not. <laughs> so he said, do you want to meet Mick Jagger? And I went, yes, I want to meet Mick Jagger. <laughs> and so I was so sheepish and nervous I sort of saddled up uh, to the side of him and he saw me peripherally and he, because he's gone through this so many times and he's experienced so many nervous people coming mm -hmm. up to me, he just turned around and he got, come on, man, come <laughs> on, give me a hug, give me a hug. Wow. wow. And I went, oh, well, that's the way it works. He's just, yeah, he's, you know, Mick Jaggers, I don't know how old he is, but he's, he's got like running shoes on yeah. and sweatpants and he's... He's very, very jokey. He's very, very wow. funny. He's just like a he's like a seventeen year old boy. Um, his his son was in the show. He played the he played the uh, the rock star yeah. that we pick up, uh, you know, and and tout uh, uh, that many people don't like. But um, Juno Temple's character. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Juno. Yeah. Juno Temple. What a great cast. Bobby mm. Cannavale. Yeah. Uh, Ray Romano was amazing in that series. Uh, Juno Temple, Jack Quaid, Dennis Quaid, and Meg Ryan's son. I mean, it was just, uh, it was just, I had such a good time. And you know, when somebody says you're going to be in a Mick Jagger produced series directed by Martin Scorsese mm. about the rock and roll scene in the 1970s, I had people going, that's going to run for 20 years yeah. after one season it was canceled. I, and I did not get that. Well, I think I, it was a it was a money issue, and there weren't enough eyes on it, right. you know. And there was a change in leadership at HBO, and so the guy that championed the project left, and uh, the other guy didn't want to take it. You know, it was just too expensive, uh, given the amount of uh, eyes on the on on uh, on the television series. I, I guess as an as a working actor, as someone who has so many credits on your your IMDb page, you have to get used to that sort of thing. You can't let it destroy you, right? I really don't let, uh, I, I don't care if I work again. I know that sounds like I'm, 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 I'm bullshitting you, but yeah. I, I really don't. My brother just died last year. He was a young man. Yeah. I mean, life's too short, man. This is, this is what you got to concentrate on. My father died two years ago. I don't care about stuff like this. I'm fine. I've worked my ass off yeah. in my career. If I don't work again, that's cool. That's cool. I mean, I'd like to, yeah. and you know, other people ask me, "Do you ever think of retiring?" I, 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 I no, I never think of retiring. Why would I retire? Yeah. But uh, if I don't get offered work, I'm totally fine with it. So I think that there's nothing like mortality and the face of mortality to put things in perspective. Definitely, for you. I'm there's sorry nothing. to hear about your brother. Yeah. Um, I know that a number of years ago I had cancer and uh, it's it's all, we knock wood every time, but it was five years ago now. I've been clear for five years. But Congratulations. Changed, thank you. It changed everything for me. Every yeah. single fiber of my being yeah. changed. Yeah, your molecules change changed. as a result. Sure does. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it does. It changes everything. And, and How are you different? I have perspective now. Yeah. I have perspective. And, and when I hear you say, I don't care whether I ever work again, 
I'd like to. I feel the same way. I'd like to. But I, I understand that there are things that are far more important than whether I step in front of a, a television camera again. And weirdly, if you honestly do it, you actually end up getting more work because you're in a different headspace. Yeah. It's I, like – and people read that. They don't want some desperate dude coming in their door, mm-hmm. you know, pining for, uh, you know, this is the be-all and end-all and the only thing in, the only thing about their life they're concerned about, you know. So I, I, I'm like – so it's all worked out. I've never been busier. Yeah, and it's this is an odd age for me to be busy because of the political climate, and uh, and then you know just just because I'm an old dude. Well, there's so much going on here, so we <laughs> I keep teasing. We'll talk about all this stuff, and now we're almost out of time. October Faction is the story of globe-trotting monster hunters uh, that after <laughs> the death of your father in the in the show yeah. return to hometown in upstate New York with their teenage children and find that things are a little bit off. I think I haven't seen this yet. Nobody has it; hasn't aired yet. No. But I think that really good science fiction is never about. Uh, the monsters or the spaceships or whatever. It's about universal human truths, right? And that's what this show is. You're a smart dude. This, the monsters are a metaphor for the xenophobic paranoia of the other mm-hmm. that the, the Trump administration is fanning the flames of right now. So it's very topical. Yeah. It is both a supernatural thriller. We do have special effects, but it's also a character-driven family drama about marriage, the, the ups and downs of a marriage, homophobia, racism. My son in the show is gay. My children are biracial. We go to this small town. They have to deal with that. And it's also about the, you know, how history has tended to paper over these horrible things that institutions have done to to maintain power. We're dealing with this organization in the show that I work for, the secretive organization called Presidio that my father was the head of and his father was the head of and they want me to be the head of. And so it's this, it, it is an allegory on m- many of those things. And uh, and for that reason, I think it's cool, man. I've never, you've got humor, you've got, it's set in a small town. So it's got a Stephen King vibe to it. It's very scary. Damien Kindler, the executive producer, is a very funny guy, so it's got a lot of humor in it. I hope there's more humor in it next season in right. the event we come back. But uh, And I've never done something like this. So, you know, it's uh, it's real playtime. I, I got a big gun. I'm a spy. I'm a nerdy spy, <laughs> you know? So it's uh, I'm really excited for this series. I mean, it'll be interesting to see uh, interesting to see how it does. We just have a few seconds. Share is also that's playing on Crave right now. People can see that. Uh, what's the one-liner on Crave? Oh, on Share. Great, great story about a girl who at a party uh, 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 blacks out, and it's uh, she wakes up and doesn't know she's raped. She thinks she is, but there was no rape kit done within a twenty-four hour period of time, and the parents get involved. I play her father in Porna Jagannathan. The great Porna Jagannathan uh, plays her mother. And we sort of try to facilitate her making correct decisions and backing her up. It went to the Cannes Film Festival. HBO picked it up. Uh, So many more eyes uh, have seen it than A24 was a producing company, which is a pretty prestigious producing company. Um, So, um, yeah, it's it's really uh, – it was. I didn't make much money doing it because it was a relatively small budget, but I don't care, man. It was such a great time. JC, what a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. So nice speaking to you. You know your stuff. 
I've been in conversation with J.C. McKenzie. Uh, see him in October Faction on Netflix coming up later this month. Right now in Share, which you can see on Crave. And of course, in The Irishman opposite Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. And coming up soon, you will see him in The Trial of the Chicago 7. My thanks to J.C. My thanks to Mike Catherwood on the board. Most of all, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk again next week.